Well, we are glad to welcome you back to The Will and Rob Show. After nearly 30 episodes, Robert Hassler has finally given me permission to do the introduction. It has taken a lot of behind-the-scenes fighting, bribing, discussion, argumentation. I had to write a 37-page paper, the full bibliography, arguing why I should be allowed to do such a thing why it would be good. So anyways, it's just a real honor. It's been a lot of hard work to finally get here. Uh, I am Will Stockdale. I am a ministry associate with Ministry of State. I'm here with my good friend, Robert Hassler, also a ministry associate with Ministry of State. Uh, If you like what you're about to hear, or even if you don't like it, uh, leave us a review (laughs) on iTunes. Careful. To hear from you. Yeah. I figured, look, we're not going to discriminate here. We want to know about our haters. It's good to hear from you. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter. We'll remind you at the end, but you can follow Robert at RD Hassler. And you can follow me on Twitter at Stockdale Will. Uh, Robert is much more active and posts much more interesting things. So, but hey, we're we're here to talk about what has happened um, and largely what has happened since this past weekend. You know, we had mentioned on our last show that we both remembered clearly where we were when we heard about 9-11. And I think the same thing will probably be true for where we were when we heard about RBG. I, I remember exactly where I was when I heard about Scalia and then uh, and RBG. And so this has been a, a massive, well, I, I almost want to say addition to the volumes of that are turning into 2020, of uh, this craziness and chaos that is this year, the intensity of the 2020 election just amplified by an entire branch of government, the... Um, questions people have about what's going to happen, the, the importance uh, that, that people are going to hold on who gets elected have just gone higher. And then there are a lot of questions about who's he considering nominating because Mitch McConnell has said that Donald Trump's going to nominate someone. And then there's also some interesting religious freedom topics that have come up as a result. So we want to talk about all of these. Uh, that was one of those old fashioned chapter introductions to books. Like, you know, when you read the divine comedy outline of the whole thing before you get into it, that's kind of what that was. So I know I bet listeners are being like, this is going to be a tall order. That's a lot of stuff to cover. And if we can't substantively, we'll just mention it. But how are you, Robert? Oh, I'm doing fine. Yeah. 2020, like undefeated. It's just, it's like one after the other of things going sideways. And it seems that the, the intensity of the year just keeps getting amplified after every new event. But yeah, things are just kind of wild. You said, you know, where you were when you, when you heard the news. Um, I was sitting in my son's room, rocking him to sleep, and I, my phone was in my pocket, and I just felt like a million text messages come in uh, at one time. And I was really like, do I need to like put my son down and check this? Like, what's going on? Is it like an, an emergency? And but did uh, open my phone and see see the news about RBG. Obviously, a really sad and historic loss uh, for the country. I mean, she would probably always be one of the top uh, Supreme Court justices at the top of people's minds. When you know, if they're asked, you know, can you name one or or a couple? I'm sure people will list Ruth Bader Ginsburg for a long time. She just kind of stands as an icon in that field. Uh, obviously, a huge legacy for women in law. Um, she'll kind of always be known for that and, and her representation as a woman on the Supreme Court. But what you said about knowing where you were when, she, when you heard her passing made me remember where I was when Scalia passed. And 
Um, just what we know about the relationship between the two, I think kind of links those events in my mind. Justice Scalia's son who has written a book um, about his father and kind of some stories from his life does a really good job of documenting uh, the relationship, the friendship between Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Anthony Scalia while they both sat on the Supreme Court. Um, theirs was sort of a notorious friendship um, that crossed party lines and was really deep and, and amicable. I know that uh, the story that stuck out to me was the story of um, there's a guy that went to go talk to Anthony Scalia in his, his chambers. And he said, oh, I noticed you have two dozen roses. And he goes, oh, yeah, I got to go bring those down to Ruth for her birthday. And the guy kind of just offhandedly said, um, well, what have any of those roses ever done for you? You've never won a vote, you know, won her vote on an important case. And Scalia saying uh, something to the effect of there are more important things in life than votes. Um, and I, I think we like to sit there and remember those, those moments. They kind of speak to our better angels, but just the event I was thinking about where I was when, when the news about his death passed or his new, his death came across the news um, just because it was su such a weird moment for me. I was sitting in a bar uh, in DC, grabbing a drink with a buddy who had come into town. I won't mention the bar cause I don't want to disgrace uh, any of their patrons, but uh, essentially, the news broke that Antonin Scalia had passed and the bar erupted in applause, which wow. was really Christ. gross at the time and really uncomfortable. But I think I, I remember sitting there and kind of just being like, you know, the person who would be most ashamed of this behavior is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who so many in D.C. venerate and treat as a personal hero. And so um, that's always kind of stuck with me. And I, I don't know, that was kind of in my head when I heard the news of RBG. Right. Their, their friendship is, is pretty legendary and that they're such opposite ends, opposite philosophically, and yet both viewed each other as people and humans and uh, <clears throat> something of their friendship to do something to repair the partisan divide. I don't know if that message is getting heard, but it would be nice. Scalia said something to the effect of Ruth Bader Ginsburg as, what is there not to like except for her belief on the law? And I think that that kind of sums up what people kind of wish DC was still like, but it's just, it's just not, it, it, it's a sad, unfortunate reality, but that's kind of where we're at. And we're kind of seeing that being played out with what's going on with the political implications of this vacancy uh, at the Supreme Court. Right, which has in some ways come full circle. The chickens have come home to roost with the attempted confirmation of Merrick Garland that didn't transpire. Mitch McConnell uh, refused to allow it to go forward. He held back. And then when Donald Trump won, tossed that in the trash and went ahead with Neil Gorsuch as that happened. One of the things that I found like really interesting that I guess was originally the Biden rule has become the Mitch McConnell rule now twice is that you um, do not appoint a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of a president's uh, in office while the Senate is held by the opposite party. What's super interesting is that people have said McConnell's being inconsistent. Now, like him or hate him, 
uh, is one thing. But the crazy part is that he's actually not inconsistent. The rule still stands. And, and it, it is not a legal rule. It is not in the Constitution. Uh, it is, it is uh, precedence in some way. So the question becomes more not like, is there precedence or is it legal? It is, is it prudential? Is it the wise ethical thing to do? Um, and that becomes a, a super, an issue, something right or wrong. It becomes a very gray argument. It becomes a very difficult argument to make. Well, I guess that kind of the question is, you know, is that message being uh, articulated well to voters? I mean, we can sit here and, and say, like, like you pointed out, like the precedent is if president is held by this party and the Senate's held by this party, you don't confirm. But if it's other, there's all these sort of like asterisks on it. There's all these uh, contextual points that just gets lost in translation, right? Like the, the thing that most people tend to be grasping, at least when I read the reports about it and stuff is, no, the rule is you don't nominate a Supreme Court justice uh, during an election year. and it's kind of funny how that's, it's just sort of that very blanket thing that's being said. Like, so therefore the Republicans are being hypocritical without like recognizing the fact that in order for the Republicans to have done that to Garland, a president would have had to have nominated a Supreme Court justice in an election year. Like it's one of those things about our politics where it's kind of, if you take a step back and just sort of analyze exactly what's going on, you realize here's the political context. This makes sense. This makes sense. But when we don't have that, when everything's just sort of like rushed, you've got to give your first hot take on Twitter five minutes after an event. Um, we tend to rush to these things that we're not really taking time to, to understand before we say them, I guess is, is kind of the way I'm making sense. Like, so do you think that like the average person who doesn't really follow a ton of politics, they kind of know the current events, but not, they're not super ingrained into like the DC news media. That do you think that what Mitch McConnell is doing right now is perceived as hypocrisy or not? Like, what do you think that person's thinking? If people don't pay close attention to their argument, most people will say it's hypocrisy. Most people will then say it doesn't matter. This is what needs to be done. And the ends justify the means. Again, I, I will say that I don't think that he is actually being hypocritical if his rule it was made in, in earnest. But I, I think probably what it's going to come down to is this idea of what needs to be accomplished by which party. And um, it doesn't matter how that's done. If that violates something that was said in the past, it's worth it. It's totally yeah. worth it. And I think that is more troubling here when you look at the whole situation. I mean, the question comes down to, which is kind of the way that the, the White House is, people at the White House are, are saying, it's like, look, well, in the Constitution, it says we can do this. We're going to do it. Like, it really comes down to an exercise of raw political power. Well, um, so David French uh, wrote an article for Time, and he said that what that the, let's say Amy Coney Barrett, which we'll get to her in just a minute, but let's say that she gets nominated and she gets voted on, she's confirmed, she becomes a Supreme Court justice. He is calling that an an exertion of brute power, mm. and I would say, I don't, but I don't think that is actually brute power at all. It it is it's legal it's constitutional that is not like the forcing you know you have the favorite andrew jackson quote we'll make them enforce it then supreme court decided something was illegal he was like well unconstitutional well now let's see them enforce it that's not what's happening 
here. So I think to call it brute force is to miss it. I think, again, what people are looking at is, is this the wise, good thing to do for a country? Will this, what people have said, this might delegitimize the courts permanently, that this will further the divide, that this will just create greater vitriol, that, that sort of stuff. But that is a different argument from what is truly meant by brute power. I don't know if that, if that is brute power, then everything ever done in politics is brute power. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That is not a good, a good way to look at this. You can really look at it, the downside being, what does this do, like you said, about legitimization of, this, of the courts? And then what does it do to the furthering of the partisan divide between Republicans and Democrats? When it comes to how um, legitimate the courts are, I'm not worried at all about the Supreme Court being delegitimized because if anything, they're the only branch of the, of the government that really does anything anymore, like has substantial power in a way that decisions actually change and affect how people live their lives. I mean- Which is tragically probably the result of the ineffectiveness of other branches of government. Yes. And then in addition, the, in some ways, the improper use of the courts. Uh, but that's not one side. Right. That's not. What we need to realize is that most of how our lives operate, you know, since the 1960s has mostly been in a, a result of how the courts have decided major culture war issues. I mean, so I'm not really worried about the court becoming illegitimate. Just I more think, disliked. Yeah, yeah, more so, yeah that every decision is now ratcheted up to 10, which I think is, is more, more speaks to the issue that people are really concerned about, which is what does this do for partisanship and compromise between Republicans and Democrats? And I think one thing to just keep in mind is that we don't really operate in a, in a normed political environment. Like we, don't, we aren't really governed by norms anymore, if that makes sense. Like ever mean? since the nuclear option, it's been a matter of, of raw political power. If I have 50 plus one, then, you know, it, it's, it's pure majoritarianism. And I'm not, you know, we can sit here and bemoan that, but that's not going to change the fact that it's happened. I mean, that's the environment we live in. So like when I read pieces like Dave, David French's and Jonah Goldberg's, I'm like, this is really sweet and probably would make a great West Wing episode, but it doesn't have any of standing in reality. That's just not how it works because, um, and I think, it, I think if I were to have this conversation with somebody on the other side of the aisle, they'd probably agree with me, which is that if you were to flip the sides, you know, Democrats would absolutely be on the side of, of pushing somebody through during an election year. I mean, that's just kind of the environment we live in. And like I said, we can sit here and bemoan that and we can wish it weren't so, but that doesn't change the way it is. And so if you're in the business of statesmanship and prudence, um, or you're somebody looking from the outside in, you know, how does this affect how I vote? How should I, how should I think about these things? I think you have to still do the hard work of figuring out, well, what is the most prudential thing to do um, within the circumstances? And I, I think that the Republicans have rightly or wrongly judged that the most prudential thing to do is, is put uh, someone on the court. So you mentioned that's just not the world we're living in. That's not the realism phrase we're both fans of is proximate. Probably mentioned that more off air than on air, but the idea of proximate justice and proximate good. And I like that because 
the ultimate good is is never going to fully come to be realized here on earth. And this is a question for Christians to consider. How do we pursue the proximate good, the proximate right thing to do, proximate justice, when the tide is pulling us further and further away from the ideal? Yeah. It's a lot easier to be content with the concept of proximate justice when thing, all things being equal and when it's easier to aspire and when things are closer to the good. Now, uh, with things being so fraught and nuclear option that was hit and the scorched earth mentality that is being abided by, I mean, how, how, do, how do you reconcile that right now? Well, I mean, I don't know if people are taking the right lesson away from this situation. Uh, and I mean that not just politically, like putting on my political consultant hat, but also, you know, as somebody who wants to see more goodwill between the parties and more compromise and, and uh, I want to see partisanship down. And the, the lesson of all this is not the Senate is institutionally disadvantageous to Democrats and liberals, disregarding the fact that Democrats held the Senate, what, six years ago or something like that? Six, 10 years ago? So, you know, let's not pretend like this has been a, a, a thing for super long. Um, what it shows me is that what, there's a polarization going on between the parties where increasingly parties feel comfortable speaking to one set of Americans and not the others. Right. So like there's a lot of news coming out of the Democratic Party apparatus saying, well, if we do win the, if we do win the presidency, some of the things that we need to work on to make sure that we don't put ourselves in situations like this is to add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, thereby gaining four senators. Uh, we need to get rid of the Electoral College. And that seems to me to be the wrong takeaway from what's going on. The reason why Democrats aren't winning seats in the Senate is not because the Senate is institutionally against them. They're not appealing to voters and Americans in states where they could win, right? Like the Senate is, is set up to, to, to advantage states. Well, there's just not as many big urban cities where most Democrats are uh, in those states. Well, de Democrats could absolutely be competitive in, in Midwestern states, uh, in states in the middle of the country. But as far as I can tell, they choose not to because they choose to speak to one side of the party. And this is true of Republicans, too. It's a reason why they don't win the popular vote is because they don't make an appeal to people in urban areas. They, just, they don't try to communicate to them. So to me, the, the answer, the solution is, is to really encourage parties to go out and make a, a, an appeal to the entire country, to make appeals to people. And I think what they would notice is that there's actually a lot of this is kind of something that pollsters always bemoan. There's actually a ton of overlap between. Um, Americans on a lot of key issues, but it seems to be that the, the parties have adopted a conquer and divide sort of mentality instead of what is an all-encompassing message that everyone can get on board with. And that might sound different than what we've heard from sort of the Reaganite conservatives and the super left-wing side of the Democratic Party, but it would be an encompassing message. It'd be a a message that appealed to a lot of Americans. I, I think that's that's kind of a simple thing that I would take away is sort of like, how do we get away from the scorched earth policy? It's like, I don't know, go out and talk to people. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Take, make a message to the entire country. Well, you mentioned divide 
and furthering divide and um, making appeals uh, and scorched earth. Well, we've already seen this. The, the front runner right now for Donald Trump appointing someone is Amy Coney Barrett. Among other things, there's a lot of things about her, but she is Roman Catholic. And there is the story about her when she was being appointed to a federal judgeship and uh, the dogma is loud within you, speaks loudly within you. Yeah, Senator Feinstein. Yeah, the religious test that was basically put forth. We're seeing an interesting case with her being the front runner of people attacking her on the basis of her faith, which is... I don't even think it's curious anymore. I don't know if it's surprising, um, but it is, it is not good. In the last couple of days, when, as Amy Coney Barrett's name has been circulating as, as the favorite, I've really never seen this level of, um, I don't even really want to call it just anti-Catholic bigotry, although that's what it is. But just because of the way that, that Amy Coney Barrett talks about her faith, and the way she lives her faith, I mean, it is it is really an anti-Christian bigotry, which is weirdly vocal, especially coming f- mostly from a party that is running a, a presidential candidate and touting his Catholic faith. It's very, it's a very interesting dynamic that I think is going to be really hard for a lot of people to sort of, you know, square the circle on it. Like it's it's going to be tough. I mean, did you did you see that um, Washington Post piece? I think that the headline was essentially like, "Look how she talks about her job in terms of the kingdom of God." Like, did you see that? She's basically, I think, the accusation was a theocrat. Her goal is to create a theocracy here. She's the greatest. It's Handmaid's Tale all over again. Yeah, I saw uh, a guy from RTS professor, a very smart guy, said the uh, argumentum ad Hitlerum is the same thing as the argumentum ad hand, handmaiden's tailorum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in that it's kind of the new way. It's the new accusing someone of Hitler, which is hilarious. Uh, in so much as Hitler was actually based in history, we've now moved to complete fiction. Right. That the greatest thing you can accuse someone is a fictional character, which I guess we've done with Orwell. I guess it's like an Orwellian, a new Orwellian, regardless to the point. I want to stick with my point. I want to see my point stands. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, they were accusing her of, like staying in the kingdom of heaven, which I think in one sense exposed their utter ignorance of what that is and what that means. Uh, it exposed the fact that not understanding what that looked like when Jesus came to earth, it was in fact not a political, in the sense of his goal was not to become Caesar. Right. Uh, it was political in so much as it involved the people, but it was not political in so much as it was uh, about unseating Caesar and putting Jesus in place there. And I, and I think the other thing is that to see one's work as an opportunity to extend the kingdom of heaven is not unique to this woman in any sense for all of Christian history, all of multiple Christian traditions has seen one's work to be a part of that and to see one's calling, whether that's getting married, having families, having a job, whatever, as a part of extending the kingdom 
as a part of following God and his work to extend the kingdom of heaven. I think it's important there. I think that further comforts things in that, look, we're not the ones who actually build the kingdom at all. God is the one who's building his kingdom. We are participants in that work with him. But, and I think this is some of, one of the reasons people have been concerned about the language of freedom of worship instead of freedom of religion and the difference there. You can have that, just keep it private. Don't, don't tell anyone that it's out there. Uh, but she also had a very brilliant response. And she's like, look, I don't believe that my religious view should change my interpretation of what is the law. But she's like, I also think it's silly to assume that people do not come in with some kind of morality based in their ultimate beliefs. That's how morals work. And hers just happened to be Roman Catholic, very thoughtful Roman Catholic. And I say that as a Presbyterian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're dealing with issues of justice regardless of what creed you hold to, you're going to come into that work with some, with some basis of right and wrong. And it's only someone who's ignorant who says, oh, it's only the Christian who does that. Um, I mean, that's what everyone does. Even an atheist lawyer is approaching the issues of justice from some standpoint of right and wrong. The people that don't do that, we, we rightly call sophists. So I think that some of the, the commentary has been really revealing. I, I think I chalk it down. Some of it's bigoted. I get that. I think a lot of it is ignorance. Um, like you said about the kingdom of God thing, like people read that as theocratic without realizing that the New Testament ne- never once prescribes a theocracy. I guess sort of the question is, what do we expect to hear more of going down the line? I mean, you're going to have a Supreme Court justice nominee whose Catholic faith is going to be up for critique. And at the same time, uh, the people doing that critiquing are running a a guy uh, for president who is Roman Catholic. I mean, what are the dynamics there? Like, what do you, what do you see happening with that dynamic? I don't know how far you can run the anti-Catholic bigotry without it just completely backfiring in the inconsistency. You you would have to like completely retool and say, yes, but Biden doesn't view his work primarily as a Catholic. He views it as an American. You have to have a level of disingenuousness, I think, as well in it to allow it to happen. But I don't I don't see it working without being highly contradictory and um, explosive potentially. Yeah, it, it reveals that we have two different definitions of what separation of church and state uh, means for people in this country. There is the traditional view that separation of church and state means that the state can't encroach on religion and the state can't favor one religion over the other. And then we have the sort of the post sixties view really that was articulated really well by John F. Kennedy, a Catholic himself who said that, uh, no, it, separation of church and state means that faith doesn't have any role on the public square. It doesn't, it doesn't contribute to uh, people's work in government. Um, to get back to the idea of kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, using those terms as synonymous, trending on Twitter has become much more part of the, the, the lingua franca, you could argue, at least up here in the past few days. One of the interesting things I think to consider is the opportunity this provides Christians to explain and announce that the kingdom 
of heaven is here. I think of Mark 1, 15, where Jesus, you know, the believe the kingdom of the, the gospel of the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Uh, and then and then the proclamation of the kingdom is at hand. So I think there's a, a real opportunity for Christians and interacting with non-believing friends to dig into what this looks like in a non political way to say, look, you know, this is kind of in the water right now. People are talking about this for or against Amy Coney Barrett, whatever, like that's irrelevant to like, Hey, this is, this has come up. Do you know what this is? Can I, can I tell you about this? Or if someone asks, Hey, this is actually something that's very um, much a core element to Christianity. Uh, and it looks like a multitude of things. I mean, it's, it's the kingdom of heaven goes as far as the curse is found and be able to fully describe that and to get to tell people about Jesus and to get to explain who he is and what he's doing from the ultimate personal to the, you know, cosmic. There's a a real evangelistic opportunity here, I think, to talk about things in a non-political sense. Yeah. The the point is that the king, the kingdom of God is not a political program, right? It's, it's something that was being advanced and, is i should just say that it it just is even in some of the most secularized secularizing periods of american history right like these are forces that cannot combat the kingdom of god and so i think that that's an important way to sort of talk about things because without that context it's always going to be interpreted from someone outside as some sort of theocratic political program instead of something that's, that is that Christians are engaged in and are doing in not just the political aspect of their life, but in all areas of their life. Right. That's, that's a big point of this, you know, politics has become such a thing that we've focused for, for the last few years on it's become the thing that has just dominated every conversation even within the church, there was a seat Christianity Today piece that came out a few weeks ago that was getting a lot of attention about this church that was implementing this program to think about how to integrate their faith with their politics. And, you know, a bunch of people were saying, this is awesome. This is great. Um, I don't know if like we've really sat down and just kind of tempered all this, which is saying, hey, look, it might be limited. Our engagement as Christians in politics and integrating those two things may be limited in a sense, and there, there's these whole other host of vocations, you know, besides citizen that we do this work in, right? You are no more advancing or engaging in kingdom work and politics than you are when you are being a father and a husband or being a mother and a wife. You advance and engage in kingdom work as an accountant as much as you do as a politician we like to rank things. We like to put things in hierarchy. We like to think of efficiency and these sort of meritocratic and capitalistic mindsets, right? Where, oh, the politician, because he's got access to these levers, he's actually a much more efficient kingdom worker than the plumber. But that's really not how to talk about these things. That there's a, there's a way in each of these things and it's, it involves uh, discipleship and being formed by scripture um, to understand but they're never creating a, a hierarchy between those two. And I, I think that that's something we could benefit from talking about more. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I think of Peter where it talks about um, refining fire 
and uh, what will be saved through through fire at the end. And, you know, it could be there's some big legislation or judicial opinion that's passed that doesn't make it in the new heavens and new earth. And some little faithfulness, some two widows mites that are given do make it. Uh, and there's something beautifully reassuring about that in this re- reminder that the, the story of the talents, the parable of the talents, that we're called to be faithful with what we have and what we've been given and to make much of Jesus through those things and not to miss out on the goodness and the goodness in the world because we don't have more, which is an easy thing to be tempted by. Uh, yeah. It's easy to compare. Well, that is that is as much as I have for this show. Robert, is this a good place for you to land the plane? Yeah, this was fun. I uh, I enjoy putting on my little political consultant hat for a hot minute. Can I lead us out? You did such a good uh, job. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can't have it all at once. I was going to say, you did such a good job. This, is, this has been great. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Will and Rob Show. You can leave us a review. Hit five stars. We'd be very grateful. Um, if you have a question, if you um, had any additional comments, feel free to drop us in a DM on Twitter. I'm at Arden Hassler, Will, and Stockdale Will. Thank you, guys. We'll see you all next week.